These are the words of John Ortberg written less than a decade ago, but they could have very well been mine. I'm disappointed with myself. I'm disappointed not so much with particular things I have done as with aspects of who I've become. I have a nagging sense that all is not as it should be. Some of this disappointment is trivial. I wouldn't have minded getting a more muscular physique. I can't do basic home repairs. So far, I haven't shown much financial wizardry. But some of this disappointment in myself runs deeper. When I look in on my children as they sleep at night, I think of the kind of father I want to be. I want to create moments of magic. I want them to remember laughing until the tears flow. I want to chase fireflies with them, teach them to play tennis, have food fights. I look in on them as they sleep at night, and I remember how the day really went. I remember how they were trapped in a fight over checkers, and I walked out of the room because I didn't want to spend the energy to teach them how to resolve conflict. I remember how my daughter spilled cherry punch at dinner and I yelled at her about being careful as if she revealed some deep character flaw. I yelled at her even though I spill things all the time and no one yells at me. I yelled at her to tell the truth simply because I'm big and she's little and I can get away with it. It's not just my life as a father. I'm disappointing also for my life as a husband, friend, neighbor, and human being in general. I'm disappointed that I still love sin so much and God so little. Sometimes, although I'm aware of how how far I fall short, it doesn't even bother me very much, and I'm disappointed at my lack of disappointment. Where does this disappointment come from? A common answer in our day is that it is a lack of self-esteem, a failure to accept oneself. That may be part of the answer, but it's not the whole of it, not by a long shot. The older and wiser answer is that the feeling of disappointment is not the problem, but a reflection of a deeper problem. My failure to be the person God had in mind when he created me. Just who did God have in mind or what did God have in mind when God created me and God created you? Paul gives a glimpse of this in Ephesians 4 when he says that we should all become mature, obtaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The plan from the beginning, says Paul, was that we would be like Jesus. And we would look like Jesus, and that was our destiny. And to the extent that we don't get there, there is that gnawing sense, even if we can't identify it, of disappointment. Jesus put it another way. In Matthew, the 10th chapter, he talked about becoming a disciple. And he said, now disciples not above the master. It's enough for a disciple to be like the master. We were created to be like Jesus. It's interesting that the New Testament, the word disciple shows up 269 times. The word member only shows up a few And yet, if you look at church in the 21st centuries, we practice it today. There's a lot of emphasis on members. As Troy mentioned, we'll have 30 new members come in this morning. But very little emphasis on discipleship. A lot of emphasis on having faith in Jesus. But very little emphasis on following the one you claim to have faith in. As Dallas Willard points out, Jesus once gave what's called the great commission. Go into all the world. Make disciples and baptize. And Willard says that we've turned that into the great omission. We've gone into all the world. We've baptized millions, but made very few disciples. For a disciple is a person who wants master. 
A person who wants to be like the master. Who wants not to know what the master knows. That's like a pupil in North America. But rather to be who the master is and to do what the master does. So it's not surprising that when Jesus is out there walking on the water, Peter jumps out of the boat and tries it too because he wants so much to be like the master. He doesn't just want to be forgiven by Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus. And yet, in our church today, we seem to separate the two and we talk about believing in Jesus, but not becoming like Jesus. Having faith in Jesus, but not following Jesus. We create what some scholars call vampire Christians. You know, we're all interested in being saved by the blood and cleansed by the blood or washed by the blood. But none of us seem to want the heart of Jesus, his blood pumping through us so that we would become like him. We've made a tragic, tragic error, not recognizing that it's not just about trusting Jesus for forgiveness. It's about trusting Jesus for all of our life. If he was right about our sin and right about our salvation, wouldn't he be right about everything else as well? Right about how to live life, right about how to have good relationships, right about how to use our time and our treasure. It's not enough to trust him just to be right in one area. But we follow him in every area so that we might become just like him. And when we divorce the two, several things happen. First of all, we get clearly out of God's will in the Bible. As a Bible scholar and theologian, A.W. Tozer once wrote, to separate discipleship and obedience from salvation in the New Testament is unheard of. No one in the New Testament ever thought about being saved apart from then following Jesus Every day, it just didn't happen. The other thing that happens is sometimes when we accept Christ, we still don't find that our life is as it was meant to be. And what happens, says Dallas Willard, is the very abundant life that Jesus promised when he came comes in following him. And when we don't follow him, we throw out the very promise that he made. So we no longer have peace in the midst of difficulty and hope in the midst of despair and power to stay and do the right thing at exactly the right time. We no longer live a life that where love characterizes every one of our actions because we just tossed out the following in favor of just the believing. The costs are not only personal, but the costs are also to the community. Because I think Jesus' plan from the beginning was to touch a few lives with the love Of Christ as they rubbed up against him. And then when those people rubbed up against others, people would be drawn to his love. Or as the late Frank Laubach said, the master plan for evangelism for the world was to make people so magnetic with the love of Christ that they would draw others to them. That's typically not what happens in our day. We typically don't draw other people to us because we're really drawn and following Christ. George Barna, who can sometimes be rather cynical about the church, Christian pollster, says this, that the number one reason people don't go to church is, any idea? The number one reason people don't go to church is the people who go to church. That they don't see enough change in their life, enough love reflected in their life. They don't see any difference, and so they figure, I can stay, stay home and save a few hours sleep, put less money in the plate, it's a better deal. If I'm going to turn out just the same way. But that's not how it was intended. That wasn't the original plan. The original plan, we would follow Jesus so closely 
that people would then want to follow us. Magnetic enough with the love of Christ that the world would be drawn in Christ's direction. Now, was the problem the plan? I don't think so. I like this analogy. It said if you bought a really nice car with a really fine engine and instead of gasoline, you poured water into that engine, would you get upset if the car wouldn't run? Would you say, that's a crummy car. The engine wasn't near as good as it was supposed to be. No, you would understand that the problem was the engine was created and you put the wrong fuel in it. It was created well. We were created to follow Christ. And when our life goes off center, the problem is not God. The problem is that we're not living the life for which we were made. The life of a disciple. One who follows Jesus so closely that their life becomes more and more like his. When the uh, early Jews talked about following a rabbi, they used a fascinating phrase. They said they wanted to be covered with the dust of the rabbi. They wanted their robes covered with the rabbi's dust. It was their way of saying, I want to follow him so closely that his dirt that he kicks up gets on me. It was a passion to be like him. And to do this, remember Jesus called the first disciples and they lived with him seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Now, fortunately, in North America, we've, got, we've gotten it a lot more efficient. Now we believe we can be like Jesus in one hour a week. Or two if we're extremely committed or slow. But that's not how it was intended. They spent time with him so they could be like him. I'm reminded of a Hindu fable a couple hundred years ago about a tiger cub whose mother died. So some goats found him and raised him. So one day he's there just eating grass and bleeding with the rest of the goats. When the king tiger of the whole area came up to him and said, What are you doing? You are not a goat. And he roared and he showed the cub how to roar and he said, now come with me and learn how to be who you were created to be. And sometimes I think Jesus looks down from heaven and goes, what's all the bleeding? Why are all my people chewing grass? They were made for so much more. And if they will just come with me and spend time with me, they will become more like me. You see, that's the fundamental shift we're going to have to make in our life. It's a lot of us right now follow Jesus for the presence, the P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, for what he can give us, salvation, or a new life, or a second chance, or a better marriage, or straighten out our kids, or fill in the blank, and we'll follow him for that. But the early disciples didn't follow him for that. They followed him for his presence, his P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. They just wanted to be with him. And they found that the longer that they were with him, the more things they received. And they became more like him. Larry Crabb, a Christian counselor, makes this point. Several years ago, he had a room full of pastors. And he told them a story, which you, some of you have heard me tell before when he was growing up. When he was almost four years old, he'd been potty trained. He just just learning. And suddenly the urge came upon him and he was at his grandparents' house with family for dinner. So he knew where the guest bathroom was, so he shot upstairs and went into the guest bathroom. And as they had taught him, he locked the door behind him, went to the bathroom and then couldn't get the door open. 
Couldn't get it unlocked, so he started beating on the door, and he started screaming, and then, of course, he went to crying. His mother came upstairs, the grandparents came upstairs, the cousins came upstairs, and they all said, calm down, you know, and they tried to talk him through it, but he couldn't open it. Meanwhile, while all this was going on, his father went and got a ladder, went around the front of the house, put the ladder up against the bathroom window, opened the window, and came in. And then Crab looked at the room full of pastors and he said, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the rest of the story is that my father then unlocked the door and freed me from that prison. And that Jesus is just like that. When I'm in trouble, Jesus is going to come get me out of it. And then he looked at the room of religious leaders and he said, how dare you always want to use Jesus for your own purposes. When what he really wants to do is exactly what my father did. My father opened the window, came in the bathroom, sat on the floor, and we played games while the rest of the family knocked to try to get in. And we just spent time together. He said, has it ever occurred to you that Jesus just wants to spend time with you? And the ironic thing is that the longer you spend time with them, the more you're with him. You find that he gives you so much more than you would have ever asked from him in the first place.